they want carbon net zero or as close to it as you can get. They want, you know, sustainably sourced materials. And so at the end of the day, whether the client truly cares about it himself or herself or not, they surely will know that their customer wants it. And so they're going to deliver it, if nothing else, because then it's economically important to their pocketbook. Welcome to Golf Sustainability, the podcast dedicated to advancing sustainability of the environment and the game of golf for future generations. Hosted by golf sustainability founder, John Fiella. The Golf Sustainability Podcast will feature conversations with industry leaders on the environmental and social issues impacting the future of the game. Let's tee off. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to the Golf Sustainability Podcast. Our guest today has a very unique perspective on golf sustainability as he's worked as a greenskeeper, he's been in golf course construction. And over the last two decades has really been considered a leading global authority on sustainable golf course design. I'm talking, of course, about Jason Straka, principal of Fry Straka Global Golf Course Design. Welcome, Jason. It's, uh, it's great to have you on this episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast. Thanks, John. Thank you for having me. I really look forward to our conversation today. It should be a lot of fun. Well, you were you were one of the first people that I, I spoke to as I was developing this concept, and your your encouragement and uh, support's been been greatly appreciated. So I've been particularly looking forward to to this to this episode. Why don't we start, Jason, by having you tell us a little about yourself, your journey in in the world of golf, kind of leading up to your your current work at uh, Fry Straka. So what well, it seems like a, such a long time now, it's amazing how fast a career can move along. But John, I've been playing golf for roughly 45 years. I can't believe I'm actually saying that. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, it's, I just look back and say, oh my, where did the time go? My father introduced me to the game. I had uncles and aunts and really a lot of extended family and pretty much everything that we did focused on playing golf. You know, as a matter of fact, even to this day, we still have an annual family reunion and we play for the Straka Cup, which is sort of like a little mini HL Stanley Cup trophy, silver champagne bucket. And if you win it for the year, your name gets engraved and then you get to keep it and you'll see it travel the world and people drinking beer and all sorts of other things with it, which is just, it's a lot of fun. But that was really the, the impetus, you know, that my love for the game was I spent the time, you know, you and I talked sometimes about not only just the environmental aspects of golf, but also in sustainability, but also the social and economic side of things too. So John, you know, my eyes were, uh, I was spoiled quite honestly. I didn't grow up as a silver spoon playing country clubs, but the area of Ohio I grew up in, I had 35 public access golf courses within about 15 minutes of my house. To most people, that sounds just incredulous, but that's how accessible the game was for me. And it was very affordable. Uh, I remember the, the public golf course, one of them anyway, that I grew up playing on, at least in my teen years, it was $150. It was 150 bucks. Uh, for a junior membership, and that afforded you to play pretty much any time you wanted. 
except weekends. It was like after two o'clock and maybe they had some leagues. But again, it was just, that was, I didn't know any better, which is you know, a great way to be raised as a young man. You know, my, my folks, I would play with my dad after uh, school or in evenings, or my mom would drop me off at the golf course and go out and play you know, with my buddies. And it was just a lot of fun. But I also had other interests uh, as a kid. Um, and in particular, I loved the outdoors. And that's really where the sort of where I started merging golf with the environmental aspects of design. But I, I grew up in an area that was pretty rural as well. Uh, I had three farm ponds in the backyard. I would literally go fishing anytime I wanted, even if it was for 15 minutes. And I would have friends over. And to this date, I think I've done six backcountry wilderness canoe trips, camp all over, go skiing, love to fish, love to hunt, pretty much anything that's outdoor related. And so to me, it was just sort of a natural progression of taking those two loves, those two passions of my life since I was been a little boy and doing something which, you know, most people would say you really don't work a day in your life. And, and that's how really I got started. That's great. It, it, and so what about your, your education? What did you study in school and how, how did you break into the world of golf course design? So one of the really early on, <clears throat> excuse me, was that my school system had actually been gifted an old dairy farm, which then turned into a living laboratory. And so that was really the first foray, if you will, probably in middle school, late middle school, maybe early high school. And we would go out and do pH testing on the water and catch all sorts of critters and understand what the natural environment you know, it held there and, and the quality of it. That really, again, that's another piece that sparked my fascination with our natural environment. I started to look for, you know, schools, if you will, that really combined all of those you know, passions together. Ended up finding Cornell University. As a matter of fact, I have my shirt on today. Go Big all Red. Right. <laughs> big Red. That's it. And of course, that was where Robert Trent Jones went to college. And at that time, back in the 80s, you know, that was really one of the biggest names, you know, along with Pete Dye in the golf industry, golf design industry anyway. While I was going to school, I was also working as a greenskeeper at one of our local golf courses, not because I wanted to be a greenskeeper, but by that time, I really knew that I had this enduring passion for you know, environmental golf design. I mean, it sounds kind of crazy to think back then and say, well, how the heck did you know? You know I, I laugh with my wife. My son's changed, God bless him, he's changed majors three times already in three <laughs> years of school. <laughs> so I don't know. Which is know not unusual. I, no, well, that's it. That's what I tell him. I said, you know, it's Zach, it's not unusual. So, you know, that's, I was just, um, I guess I was one of the oddballs that I knew right away that's what I wanted to do. You know, again, I worked at the golf course because I wanted to learn you know, about how design would have an impact on maintenance and how it impacts you know, how you maintain it from even just from a sustainable um, point of view, if you will, and an economic point of view, which is all you know, part of sustainability in that broader context. Once I went to Cornell, uh, the nice thing about that university where I studied undergraduate landscape architecture 
was that you could really mold what you wanted to do. And so I went in knowing full well that everything that I was going to take was going to be focused on um, basically prepping me, you know, to become a golf course architect or golf course designer. And so I took classes in irrigation and uh, agricultural engineering and surveying. Of course, I had chemistry and all sorts of natural resource classes too. I was, uh, I'll never forget, John, I would take these natural resource classes. And of course, I fit right in because I love the outdoors anyway. And so I just had this passion for it, but I would wear my golf shirts in the class. And of course, everybody else, we, you know, we affectionately called them granola crunchers, which, which I am one of them. Um, but at that time, I'd wear my golf shirt and they would kind of give me the cross-eyed look and say, what are you doing in here? And then, you know, where are you studying to be? And they'd say, you know, golf course designer. And then they give you the, oh boy, oh boy, you know, you don't belong in here. And I'd say, no, I'm going to prove it to you. You know, golf courses done properly and managed properly are actually really beneficial to the environment. But I stayed, I was fortunate, John, I stayed at Cornell for my graduate degree as well. There was a gentleman there named Norm Hummel. Dr. Hummel was considered one of the leading soil scientists and agronomists in the turf industry. He actually co-authored the USGA green specifications at one time, had a laboratory based in Trumansburg, New York, which is right next to Ithaca. And that's, that sort of launched another part of my career. He actually wrote a class on greens construction with a gentleman named Dr. Michael Herdson who you know, became really my professional mentor, if you will. And so Norm pulled me out of class one day and says, we're going on a field trip. And I said, where the heck are we going? And we said, we're going up to Oak Hill in Rochester. He says, I wrote this class, co-wrote this class with a guy named Dr. Mike Herdson, who's got an environmental design background as well. And you're going to come listen to this class. And that was, I think, the first one that they ever taught in the New York State Turfgrass Association. I met Mike, you know, explained to him what my background was, what I wanted to do. He agreed essentially to mentor me. He'll joke to this day that he goes, I never thought I'd hear from you again. And he says, and you'd call me like six months later and say, okay, I'm done with all of that. What's next? And so that was, you know, that became a lot of fun. And then I, my graduate degree towards the end of it, when I would needed to focus on a thesis, I went back to Mike who happened to be passing through town again. And I said, you know, Dr. Herdson, I need to create a thesis. Do you know what I'm you know, working on right now? And I said, do you have, you know, essentially a real life project that I can work on? Ironically, and John, if you believe in fate, which, you know, I do, I mean, these, these things are hard to you know, fathom that they just happen by circumstance, I guess. But Dr. Mike said, you know what? He goes, we're actually starting a municipal project in Situate, Massachusetts, and he says, it is slated to become the first environmental demonstration golf course designed, built, managed, and researched between all these golf entities and all of these environmental entities. And he said, if you want, your thesis can actually be based on the design, the planning, the construction, and the management of that facility. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, <laughs> let's talk about the right time at the right place. And so to this day, we still joke about, you know, one of the first meetings because there, there were a lot of um, untraditional or, you know, you would have a lot of the golf entities, you know, that the USGA's and the superintendents associations 
and you had some environmental groups that were semi-friendly to golf, but then you also had some that weren't so friendly to golf. And, and we, we laughed, we were like, it was an eighth grade dance and you're in the gymnasium and all the boys are on one side and all the girls on the other <laughs> side. And finally somebody had to break the ice, right. And go wander over and start talking. And that's kind of what it was like, but you know, we learned to build a big trust and rapport together still at that time, you know, back on the university front, I was actually working with another professor and Dr. Hummel uh, on different types of greens construction. So we would build uh, all sorts of types of greens and we call them lysimeters, which basically is just a, a controlled environment, if you will. Uh, and what we would do is that we would put fertilizers and, you know, different types of chemicals and things on them. And then we would capture the drainage that would come from underneath them. So we would have then a full understanding of what was good to grow grass, but also what was most environmentally beneficial in terms of management and construction. Mm -hmm. And so some of my writings and, and research was based on that as well. So, you know, again, really fascinating things that transpired. And on my master's degree team, I had Dr. Barbara Bedford, who learned from Bill Mitch, which was considered for the longest time, one of the, if not the leading wetland scientist at any university. He was based at Ohio State, which is ironic. That's where I live now, but she studied with him and uh, she was on my advisory council as were different agronomists. I had landscape architects from my undergrad who were also authorities and for example, in community planning, which is so important to what we do sure. on the sustainability side. So, I mean, as you gather, I mean, I just, I don't know that I could have had a better education and been so fortunate and blessed. I went on to work for a couple of years in golf construction and started a design build company with that group out of Maryland. And then I got a call from Dr. Mike and said, Hey, Jason, you know, you're interested in moving back to Ohio where you're from. And I said, yes, how fast can I get there? I just have to convince my wife that it's a great place to live. But now here we are, you know, almost 30 years later. That's great. What a story. Mm -hmm. When you say believing in fate, I mean, this, this could be a movie, right? I mean, you were meant to do what you're doing and that higher power put things beside you along the way to make it happen. So that's a very, very, very cool story. Thank you for, thanks for sharing it. The, the course in situate, is it still around? Is it still functioning? What was the name of it? I, I'm, Wid I'm Widow's curious. Walk. Yeah, Widow's Walk Golf Course. It was really interesting because part of it was on an old landfill. The majority of it was actually on an old sand and gravel quarry that they used. They used to mine it and actually went to build part of the uh, runways at Logan Airport. And then part of it was uh, right next to a marine uh, estuary. So, I mean, it was right on the seaside. Uh, so you know, a chunk of it was actually about rehabilitating the site. Another chunk was about preserving, you know, the fragile ecosystem that was there. And so it, of course, being in a public realm, you know, anything is everybody's record, if you will. And so it, it was all accessible by anybody in the community or any environmental organizations or golf organizations of the like. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, listen, that, that, that's, that's kind of great background to really set the stage 
so time goes on and you become this global authority on sustainable golf course design. I want to maybe start by kind of zooming out and getting a sense for kind of your take on uh, where things are today as you've worked all over the world and you've got a unique perspective on the topic. What's your sense for the state of sustainable golf course design in different regions of the world? Is there, do you see a similar level of commitment and advancement? Like where are things most advanced? What regions need the most help? Give us a, give us a good view on what's, what's the state of play right now in sustainable golf course design. I think you hit the nail on the head when you say regions of the world, because that really has a dramatic uh, impact on where things are with golf, how they're developing, how they're managed, if you will. For example, you, know, you and I talk a lot about Europe and you know travels to Europe. There's a lot of focus on sustainable golf there, testing of sustainable golf, writing research papers. For example, one of my work colleagues there is working with a couple of different universities and governments on carbon sequestration of turf on, you know, uh, in turf on golf courses. You know, there is some of that that's happening here in the U.S., but it seems to be happening more at a uh, rapid pace there. I think part of it, John, to be quite honest, you know, is, is some of it is political. You know, they tend to take, and again, it's, I, I try to be as apolitical as I can, right? Just, you know, in, in sure. the public particular, but the, just the reality of it is, is that, you know, Europe by and large in the EU countries in particular are, are more progressive in these issues. Not to say that the United States isn't, you know, but, you know, if you want to cause, you know, a firestorm in the grocery store, you know, start having a discussion with everybody in line about whether climate change is real or not. And if it is real, you know, is it just a, nat a typical natural cycle or is it man-made? You know, you'll get yourself into two hour long discussion, which might turn into a heated debate, which turns into a heated argument, <laughs> <laughs> right? That tends not to happen in Europe. <laughs> so, right. and I think that it's just, it's the reflective probably of our political, you know, system right now. Uh, you know, but then you go to different countries and for example, in Asia, and again, even in just within that realm, uh, it can be certain countries uh it's not that important and frankly in other countries it's you know uber important and the rules and regulations are extraordinarily strict so it's again it's you know you, you would like to say that we're all in a perfect place but that's just not what the reality is yeah yeah do you have any experience in in the middle eastern countries because it, it it seems to me there's a lot going on there with golf course development they certainly have a lot of sand to build on what what do you have a point of view on 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 what's happening there yeah that's it you know it's really an interesting thought or topic you know that a lot of people including myself will struggle with and, and i'm going to bring it just to, and i'll give you a for example and i'm going to bring it a little closer to home I would have these debates with some of my colleagues and other people such as yourself about golf being developed in Arizona, right? So of course, you know, their water crisis and, you know, it's been the, probably the hottest year on record, at least that I'm aware of, you know, in the desert Southwest. And so we can talk about the development of golf in 
in a sustainable manner in that type of location, that doesn't bar us from then having a greater discussion about whether or not golf belongs in that type of environment. But then that even goes out to a bigger subject matter, which is, you know, do cities even belong in that mm -hmm. climate, mm -hmm. right? Now, you can take that thought and transpose that over into a place like maybe Saudi Arabia or the you know, UAE and countries like that. Now, of course, you know, there have been people living in those countries for millennia. And so a lot of it just, you know, now that gets translated into how low key, you know, how responsible can you create certain types of development? You know, can you then create them to where, for example, some of these communities in these desert climates are trying to get to carbon net zero, mm -hmm. right? Uh, not saying that that's going to be uh, uber easy, but they're trying. And frankly, they're trying a lot more than some places where it would be easier to do that in other countries or mm -hmm. other regions you know, mm -hmm. of the world. Yeah, fascinating. We, you know, I'm curious, and 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 maybe we can kind of kill two birds with one stone here. I'm I'm interested in kind of what what are the key principles around your philosophy of sustainable golf course design, and maybe you can talk about those in the context of some you know recent projects that you've been engaged with where you've been able to implement those principles. Sure. So, you know, if I would just take a step back and say, because of my love of the environment, you know, and I, and I hold certain things so dear to myself, experiences I've had in the wilderness, which probably 99% of the world will never, ever have. Mm -hmm. And what that's brought to me, uh, you know, mentally, physically, you know, emotionally, spiritually, all those types of things. You know, I think that that is, you know, that that's critical and that's something that I definitely want to be able to, you know, to pass on, you know, as much as I can now to my children, to my grandchildren and just to future generations, which, you know, then not easy to do is then to just compartmentalize that and just say sustainability as a word is just solely focused on the environmental aspects you know, of what we do uh, in the world and in golf and golf design and golf management. So it is obviously a critical component to it, perhaps the most sort of biggest component to it. But if you really then get to a granular level, you know, I look at sustainability more as a three-legged stool where the environmental aspect, you know, is one. Mm -hmm. Then I would say that the social aspect is another Right. So I talked about, you know, my background and my family and how I grew up playing the game, you know, and all of the, and frankly, that's, I think what people really got drawn to during the pandemic. Right. So golf became such an important force, wildly popular, but it was one of the safest things that anybody could do right mm -hmm. outside. And all of a sudden it was just like, wow. Yes. It's nice to be able to get out and get some physical exercise, but it's that, you know, that being with people and the socializing aspect of it, which became critically important. So again, so there's the environmental aspect, the social aspect. Then if you really get it down even further, you know, on a granular level, is that if it's not economically sustainable, then there is no golf course there, mm -hmm. right? 
And so that becomes uh, critical. And so it is the you know, economy of whoever owns that golf course, the economics of whoever owns that golf course, but it's also then the things that it does to help and benefit the community. So again, from a sustainability perspective, environment, social, economic, right? Those are the three things that I would profess. When you actually asked, you know, or you asked about, you know, a couple of different projects, you know, one I would give you as an example is a place in Arizona of all, pla of all places. We just talked about that. And it's called Ambiente. And it is, that was just Spanish for environment. It was a redesign, rebuild project. Uh, and, you know, that golf course, John, it started off when we were given the brief, you know, to go in and to turn it into something. This is actually for Marriott. It was, they, they managed almost at that time, almost 200 acres of Bermuda grass, you know, in the Sonoran desert. And, uh, you know, they knew that that wasn't sustainable in any sort of way. And so, you know, we limited it all the way down, you know, to a very, um, comparatively minuscule amount of uh, turf grass and took well over you know, 100 acres and and converted that from Bermuda grass, irrigated, managed fields into all sorts of native desert scape. It was amazing then, you know, all of the critters, I would be out, coyotes, bobcats, you name it. Matter of fact, there was so much wildlife around that it started to get, you know, some grumbling from some of the community saying, Oh my gosh, you know, it's like turned into a you know, wild kingdom out here, which to me was music to my ears, right? But that golf course also ended up being one of the best performing golf courses in Marriott's portfolio for like the, something like five of the past six years. And so again, from an economic side of things, you know, it's done very, very well from them or for yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. So you cut in, in half the mm -hmm. amount of turf grass that they were managing, which obviously had a tremendous impact on, on all costs. I, Jason, I'm really, I'm so glad to hear about you including economic sustainability as an equal leg to the environment and social, because you're hundred percent right. If things don't make financial sense, they're not going to work. And one of the things I've seen in my experience, and this is in, you know, in virtually any industry, in the early stages of consciousness or awareness about sustainability, the broad perception exists that being green is going to be expensive. You know, do, executing sustainability is going to cost money. And then over time, people find ways to be more environmentally responsible in a way that actually improves financial results and economic results. And when being green generates green, that's that's really <laughs> where the magic happens. But it takes a while for for people to get there. So, I given that perspective and point of view that you have, I, I see now why you've been as successful as you've been because. While you're trying to be responsible to the environment, you're also trying to be responsible to the commercial interests of the owners and operators of these of these courses. Yeah, that's you know, I think that there's things that I've learned on from the outside of golf. You know, so for example, you know, our public lands, you know, and some of our national forests. You know, there is 
so long as you can rely on the scientific data and not just emotional aspects of it, you know, there are lands which then get managed, you know, as well, you know, to financially benefit all of us as people, right? So the national forest is there for recreation, but it's also there for sustainable timber use. It's there, you know, for sometimes for minerals. I mean, there's a lot of different things that go into that, but then where uh, it should be and we're required, you know, um, then there's lands that get permanently set aside or if there are very sensitive areas, whether they are old growth timber or streams or whatever the case may be, if done again, scientifically, you know, that becomes a cohabitation, if you will, of all of those things, of the economics, of the social and the environment. Yeah. What's, what's your point of view on the, you know, the biggest challenges today associated with implementing sustainable design in, in golf courses. And it can be with a focus on, on renovations if you want, or, you know, it could be focused on new courses, but why aren't we further ahead? What, what, what's been holding us back? I think a lot of it is, is education, quite honestly, you know, and it's educating. It's not even so much the, our clients, you know, because our clients, when I say are, you know, I'm using that in the broader right. uh, context, yep. Yep. you know I mean? So not just my clients, but all of our clients, they're aware uh, of things and they want, they want to do that. And I will tell people for the most part, especially some of the younger generations, my generation, and then younger environmental concerns, sustainable concerns, climate change, all of these things, you know, tend to become or have become, you know, very, very important economic drivers. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a couple of, for instances, again, there's nothing to do with golf. You go to Starbucks and you'll see your coffee, whether it's sustainably sourced or not. If you buy furniture, you'll see whether it comes from a sustainable source of, you know, wood and timber, you know, and if you really start to look, you know, through our everyday marketplace, you'll start to notice that. And so again, it's, these companies then are tapping into, you know, again, sustainable, both on the environmental side, but on the social and economic side of things, because it's really important to their end user, their customer base. And so I'll tell people, as a matter of fact, I just had a public hearing two weeks ago and somebody says, you know, why should we end up, you know, believing this particular client of yours that they want to do the right, you know, quote, the right thing. And I said, well, think about it because in the region of the country that, you know, we're looking at this, you know, this, this new golf course in, that is, it's very, it was very progressive. And I said, the people who want who live here and who want to recreate here also want all of these things, right? They want carbon net zero or as close to it as you can get. They want, you know, sustainably sourced materials. And so at the end of the day, whether the client truly cares about it himself or herself or not, they surely will know that their customer wants it. And so they're going to deliver it, if nothing else, because then it's economically important to their pocketbook, right? And so, you know, that's the part that happens, I think, just is happening more and more and more. But again, it's just, it becomes education. We live in a very large country, right? I mean, so, and there's a lot of diverse political, you know, spectrums, if you will, you know, as part of it, but it's just, it, it's a constant battle, John. I mean, you know it, you fought it your whole career. 
Yeah. You know, you've been right on that forefront. I mean, so, you know, it's so much of it's about education more than anything. Yeah. Now let's stick on that for a minute, because one of the things I'm hearing increasingly is education that's necessary with the golfer. Um, I'll hear uh, an architect or a superintendent say, well, I'd like to be more sustainable, but if it results in, you know, some brown patches on the fairway or greens that aren't pristine, uh, you know, we're going to get chewed out by the members and uh, the golfers aren't going to want to come here. So there's the sense that, and, you know, some people call it the Augusta effect where, you know, the perfect pristine golf course is what's necessary for people to enjoy the game. And when you get to education, required with superintendents okay i think we can figure that out like how do we tackle this bigger issue of educating the general public as to how more environmentally sustainable golf courses may not be the most pristine well i think for one they need to listen to your podcast right <laughs> <laughs> thank you i, I think you're right That'll help. I, again, it's, listen, the USGA put out, you know, the, you know, brown is green or brown is good, you know, campaign. There have been things, for example, like Golf Digest, you know, when they do their national ranking categories for best in state and top 100 US and top 100 world. I was having conversations with, with I think it was Ron Whitten at the time, who used to head all of that, was the architectural editor. And they couldn't come right out and say, well, here's a sustainability uh, category. But what they did do is that they created a category that was how firm and fast your golf course was, which meant less water, you know, typically less fertilizer, which also meant less, you know, pesticides and fossil fuel and those types of things. And so anybody who cared about their golf course ranking then were led into the firm and fast, which was led into the brown is good category. Even for us, I mean, it's, we do surveys a lot when we tackle improvement studies or master plan studies, and we start to talk about, you know, firm and fast, you know, and so it's interesting because I come right out and I ask the question and I'll say to, to an entire membership category and I'll say, okay, do you prefer green and lush or firm and fast, which sometimes could be brown? And I say, but before you answer, let me explain what that means. And I'll start to talk about, you know, the lush and green. You know, it takes more water, more pesticides, more fossil fuel, frankly, more money, you know, and then described about the benefits of, you know, brown, you know, brown turf, and that that's actually just a natural cycle of you know, our normal turf grasses. It's amazing then the responses that you get of, oh no, you know, we, you know, we want to be good environmental stewards. You know, we didn't realize, you know, that it took all of this to, you know, to give this lush and green, you know, and so at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road, again, it just becomes an educational piece. If it would have just came out and asked them, do you prefer lush and green or, you know, firm, fast and brown? Inevitably, the vast majority would have picked lush and green. But when you actually told them that what that meant, it was, it's, it's fantastic to see their attitudinal shift. Yeah. What a perfect example of an application around 
that consumer education. I really like this idea of using the golf magazines, right? Everyone, and I'm guilty of it when I'm looking at places to play, I've, I've got the top ranking list. I'm looking to check places. <laughs> yeah, off. right. They're a huge influence on consumer perception, obviously. And there may be something there down, down the road. So thank you for that. Thanks for that perspective. Jason, I, you know, I, I, I like to describe sustainability as a team sport and superintendent can't do it by himself. An architect can't do it by themselves that they, they need, you know, they need lots of, lots of people involved with them. You've done the greenskeeper thing. You've done some stuff on construction. What's, what's your experience in the most effective way to kind of build a coalition across those functions to really drive sustainability in golf course projects? John, you have to have a really good like-minded team, just like any organization, you know, a company. I mean, it's best functioning. It's going to hit its peak, you know, production. If everybody is on the same task, on the same message, professing the same things. So, uh, you know, not every project, you know, can or will deliver that, you know, for us, you know, I will tell you that we have those discussions with potential clients even. Uh, and so, you know, again, we want, and frankly, I mean, it could be an interesting project, but if not everybody's on the same page, whether that's a superintendent or an owner or, you know, somebody like that, then we know that we can't do our best work. Uh, it's not to say that, you know, we won't take a project and try, you know, but it's a lot more difficult, quite honestly. And so, again, it's just setting those expectations, you know, and, and working towards that common goal, um, you know, it by far produces the best uh, outcome, you know, no question. And you're right, it does take a team. There's not one person or even two or three people, you know, that can create a successful outcome by themselves. You know, you, and frankly, a lot of what we do, we spend probably as much time in the research and analysis component of any particular one project than we do pencil to paper, construction documents, you know, overseeing any type of construction activities roughly 50% of what we do is really in the understanding phase, if you will, that research and analysis component. And that's really what makes the best and most environmentally sensitive designs. You can't fully protect or rehabilitate a site unless you've done a thorough job of understanding all the intricacies of it, whether that's from groundwater matrices to ecosystems that are on top of the you know, land, forests, streams. I mean, they're just, it's a whole web of activity that's happening. I tell people, I'm a man of analogies. I've come to find out that's what my clients tell me. <laughs> yeah, the power analogies are powerful, powerful learning devices. Because people will come to me and they'll say, well, what should we do with a golf course? And I'll say, I don't know. I mean, I could give you a couple of quick snippets, you know, by walking around, but it takes a lot of time and effort and, and hard work to study it. What do you mean? And I say, well, okay, let's say you're not feeling really well. Let's say you've been not well for maybe a week, you know, or even two weeks and you go to the doctor. If you walked into the doctor's office and the doctor kind of looked at you and said, John, you're looking a little pale today. Let me prescribe you three different antibiotics and let's see what happens. 
you probably wouldn't feel comfortable with that. And you probably wouldn't go back to that doctor, right? So what would you expect to have happen? You probably go in there. They're going to take all of your vitals, right? They're going to take your temperature, look at your eyes, you know, give you the ah and all that kind of stuff. They're likely going to order a full blood panel. And if they find, you know, certain things, they might even ask for more. And they're going to do a whole gamut of different tests, right? And so any good doctor should obviously do that. And then they should figure out exactly what's going on and then start to, you know, to, to treat the underlying issues. What we do is really no different, right? So, I mean, if somebody walked onto a site and you know, immediately said, well, this is what you should do with your golf course, or this is what you should do with your site, then you're really doing you a disservice. So Jason, let's roll with this, with this doctor analogy, right? Because there are good patients and bad patients. So you get called in on a project and you do your research, you do your analysis, and you know what you should be recommending for this course to really, to, to, do the project and have it done in an environment in an environmentally sustainable way. Um, what are the types of responses you hear from the good patients? What are the types of responses you hear from the bad patients? Well, sometimes you ask yourself, what did I get myself into? <laughs> <laughs> but then you take a step back and you say, you know what, if I'm here now, and I'm going to do the absolute best that I can and make this, you know, the best project that I can, you know, with the time and, and, and the resources that I'm given. Right. So that's just that becomes just an attitude that, you know, I end up taking forward. Yes. I mean, obviously, this is real life and you get bad patients and you get good patients. You know, the good patients, you know, will believe you as an authority. That's the reason why they hired you, you know their right to question you just like you should question a doctor and sometimes go and get, you know, a second or third opinion. But at the end of the day, you know, you know, your subject matter. And so, you know, they'll get to a point where then they'll defer. And of course you have to do a good job and you just have to keep doing a good job. So you're building that trust and rapport with, you know, with that client. It's, you know, the, the bad patients, if you will, they'll do, uh, we have affectionately like to say they do an audit of an audit. Right. And so, <laughs> and, and that tends to become difficult, you know, but I mean, it's John, just like you, I mean, it's I'd be dismayed, you know, if somebody just threw up their hands and gave up and walked away, right. Uh, you know, that, so you put your head down and you keep moving forward. All right. Great. Well, that, uh, you know, it's interesting. You've mentioned trust and rapport two or three times during a conversation and I don't care what industry or business you're in. That's kind of the glue, the cement of, of, of good productive relationships. Um, I think you have to have a good side, a good bedside manner too, right? I mean, it's, you know, if you get along well with people and your clients, you know, that helps, you know, that goes a long way. So I mean, quite honestly, you know, our, our staff, you know, very purposefully, I mean, they're multi-talented, they're incredible people. At the end of the day, they're all people that you could sit down and have a conversation with about family, family values, what they, uh, you know, like to do in life, and and they're very personable. And again, that's just that's that goes part and parcel, you know, to building that trust component. Yeah, the you know, in studying your background, Jason, I mean, you're you're professionally extremely accomplished, but you've also 
given a lot back. You've been involved with several industry organizations, and I wanted to learn a little more about the work you've done with several of them. And maybe we'll start with the American Society of Golf Course Architects, because I know you've been very active in that group. So tell us a little about your work with them and also maybe reflect on their role and their current efforts in this whole arena of sustainable golf course development. Mm. So ASGCA, so we just had our 75th anniversary and I'm the immediate past president about to turn that over in just a couple of months to another colleague of mine. And, but in 75 years, you know, we've been at it for a good long time. Of course, golf has been, you know, 600 years old. So by and large, you know, we're just cover a small gamut or fraction of that. It's the organization started off as small, you know, there's over 200 and some odd members right now, you know, and that just includes North America. So we have sister organizations, you know, all over the globe, obviously proud to, you know, have led our organization. There were two things really, which, you know, during my tenure and on the board, one of which was a market shift in how uh, many of my colleagues really approached the game. And it started off probably when I was in university and college, you know, of that environmental awareness, you know, big push. There was a, a huge meeting back in the 90s at Pebble Beach on golf and the environment. There were a lot of different groups that launched out of that golf 2020. And so it really became a big part of the USGA and, you know, RNA and, and really golf worldwide. And ASGCA was a, was also a big part of that. We published several books, which we funded within our own organization on golf and the environment, on proper planning for sustainability, on creating a lot of different resources. And then, of course, you know, there's a lot of sweat equity that goes into a lot of the publications and work with the Golf Course Superintendents Association and the Builders Association. So that was, and that continues today, you know, we're rewriting or revamping, refreshing a lot of our environmental playbooks, if you will, working. Uh, there are a lot of best management practices, um, which have been right coming out with a golf course superintendents association, which we participated in some new programs at the USGA as well. So yeah, that's, again, we just keep trying to make it better, you know, better and better and better, little by little by little. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned the Golf Course Superintendents Association, and I know you've done work. You've been on committees, but you've also done educational seminars. Give give me a sense for your work with them and the, the types of things they're doing around sustainable golf course management. So they, again, working with USGA and other organizations, they do a huge amount uh, of research and also a lot of universities around the country. And so, uh, you know, their organization is much larger than ASGCA. So their funding is a lot better than ours, frankly. And then, so again, that's, they've got, I don't want to say unlimited, but compared to ASGCA, unlimited resources. But they've also then published a best management practices booklet. It really was modeled after their uh, state groups in Florida, uh, which were extraordinarily well, well written uh, and quite good. That then got adapted. And so each state chapter was able to utilize that as a template uh, to then obviously tailor it to 
uh, you know, their own climate, if you will. So, you know, what's applicable in Florida, some things would obviously applicable in maybe Washington state, but, you know, there's different situations there that they have to take into consideration. And so that's been a huge program of theirs that got, you know, rolled out over the past just couple of years, actually fairly recent. My teaching with GCSAA, you know, I was on their faculty for a while, focused a lot on liability issues, which also crossed over into the line of environmental liability as well. So we spent quite a bit of time on that. So that was something that I actually co-wrote with a, a sports attorney. So again, there's all these aspects of the sustainability. A lot of people don't talk about the, the legal parts to it, right? right? But that is a big component uh, of what we have to consider. Okay. I look forward to getting, uh, getting to know the superintendent's group uh, a little more, more closely. I, you know, living in Florida, I've heard that, I guess, Florida is the only state where, I guess, BMPs are, are there a requirement for superintendents to, to become certified in, or at least I believe that's the case. There's, so there's, you have, of course, federal, you know, it's just the way that our country works. So you have federal rules, you have state rules, you have county rules. Sometimes you even have regions, you know, so for example, if you go to New Jersey, the you know, Pinelands region, which is a protected ecosystem in the central part of the state, you know, is very different than what happens along the coastal or up near New York City. Mm -hmm. And then even in places like Massachusetts and Rhode Island, it gets broken down not only by county, then then by town and even sometimes within conservation mm -hmm. zones or districts within a town. Mm -hmm. So it's not a one size fits all. Yeah. That's interesting. That's it's not a one size fits all. That was one of the key takeaways from my conversation with with Ron Dodson. And um, <laughs> yeah. it, it's fascinating to see how those dots just got connected there. Another group I wanted to ask you about was GEO, the GEO Foundation. I, I know you've worked uh, with them. You're you're you have good relationships with the folks that run it. How closely, if at all, have you worked with them? And kind of what's the nature of your work with them compared to what it's been at the superintendents or the architects group? I, again, I just tried to branch out, John, to essentially anybody who's willing to listen, you know, and anybody who has their pulse on what's happening and can make a positive influence. So, you know, I sit on an advisory council for Audubon International. You know, I've done that, you know, for other organizations. It's one of the reasons why, you know, I've uh, had been on faculty of numerous universities, you know, over my career, but geo, I think was a really interesting way of looking at things for one is, is that, you know, I think they were free, freer of some of the political, I don't want to say shackles, but even apprehensions of certain you know, uh, mm -hmm. groups, maybe that would happen domestically here. And so, you know, they can run with things a little bit more differently in mm -hmm. Europe. And then they, of course, that gets transposed over to other countries around the world. Two is that I also got, was fascinated by their membership to a group called ICEAL, which has nothing to do with golf per se, but what happens is that they go through a lot of different sustainable groups, certifications, right? And so it basically are, they are certifying the certified. How's that? <laughs> it's like right. auditing the auditor. Right. So they're certifying the, the certifier. And so as part of that 
group of ICL, they for golf, then they would have people that would be made up in organizations within golf, but then also people that would come from organizations such as maybe the World Wildlife Federation mm -hmm. or Sierra Club or other different groups. Then that would be a third party looking over the best management practices, the certification procedures, you know, holding places accountable, not only during the planning, but also during construction and then well after construction to make sure that those facilities are still doing the things that they had promised, you know, to do and they're getting the results that they uh, were looking for. And so to me, that was a lot different. You know, I will, I will give you, again, I mentioned that, you know, I taught uh, university level for a long time who always talked about doing independent research, right? So it, yes, I mean, if you're uh, looking for, for example, a, a drug that might, you know, come out that might help somebody go back to the doctor's example, is that that, that drug company, of course, is doing research on their own drug. But the likelihood and that probably the uh, requirement is, is that you are also getting, you know, peer reviewed third party research, you know, mm -hmm. to make sure, you know, that things are basically on the up and up for lack of a better you know, analogy or phrase. And so that's what was happening at GEO, you know, on that level is that, you know, all of their principles, all of their certification, all of their requirements was being independently verified by a third party that had nothing to do with golf. To me, that actually also builds a lot of trust, right? So outside of the golf world, if you will, you know, roughly 10 to 12% of the people in North America play golf, obviously less, much less, you know, in other countries, you know, and so if I'm, you know, the 90% of somebody else, you know, and I'm looking going, well, of course, you know, they're going to say that golf courses are good for the environment, right? I mean, it's the fox in the hen house type of a thing. But if you've got somebody who's outside of golf, who's a respected and trusted entity saying, no, for real, they're doing the right things. Again, you're building instant trust. Yeah, that makes sense. That's credibility. So Jason, we've talked about kind of the importance of collaboration with architect, superintendent, general management. We've talked about your relationships with other associations. How about alliances with or, or kind of engagements with industry suppliers? One of the things I'm hearing from greenskeepers is that they're counting on industry suppliers, whether it be irrigation companies or equipment companies to develop new technology that is better for the environment. What, what's your, what role do you see industry suppliers playing in helping to advance sustainable golf course development? Frankly, a lot big, you know, for one, because, you know, some of them are, whether they're publicly or privately held, you know, not all, but you know, many of them are large entities. And of course, again, I mean, they're selling a product, selling their wares, selling their services into the end user or customer, you know, that sustainability piece or program becomes really important, especially nowadays. You know, so I'll give you a, for example, so when I was president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, we actually signed a climate pledge with our sister organizations, the European Institute of Golf Course Architects and the Australian Architects. And it, as we were 
crafting the language, you know, and going through all of the protocol, there were two or two suppliers, if you will, who jumped at the chance to actually sign the pledge with us. And that was both Toro and Rainbird, because again, it's, you know, they're, they've been progressively working on this literally for decades. And it was something that was important to them, important that they let their customers know that they are pledging, you know, and that they continue to work on advancing, you know, our world of sustainability. Yeah, that's interesting. The, in upcoming episodes of the podcast, we've got both Carnoustie and Royal Portrush being interviewed, the, the lead superintendents there and Rainbird came up in those conversations as did Toro. So those are, those are some folks we're definitely going to need to engage. So which is, you know, which is interesting because again, if you stepped outside of the golf course realm, you're looking at two companies, which are, you know, amongst the largest irrigation suppliers. And so of course you're talking about water usage. The reality is, is that all golf courses, you know, need water to sustain themselves. You know, of course, I mean, it's, it's alive, right? Turf is alive. And so whether it's coming naturally or artificially or a combination of the two, at the end of the day, though, all of their research goes into providing products, which then will give us, meaning our industry, the ability to utilize the least amount of water possible to keep that, you know, alive and, and healthy, right? So they're research, you know, in automation and, you know, delivering water in the most environmentally sustainable way possible is critical. Even looking at things like subsurface irrigation, of course, if you go to Toro, you know, they're looking at then their equipment, right? They just launched a program of autonomous mowers, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, electric mowers. And Matter of fact, John, I remember, so Dana Lawn, who headed up the R&D department at Toro for many, many years, became a friend of mine. And I remember taking uh, some clients in, this was probably 20 years ago. I'm going to get the exact number wrong, but it was roughly 20 years ago. And I was astounded because I actually got to sit on and ride a hydrogen-powered golf course lawnmower think about that 20 some years ago. Now you say, well, where is it? Well, you know, they have to make it to where it actually can, can be made and sold. Right. I mean, so you're not going to give them away and that, that takes a lot of, you know, frankly, it takes a lot of money, but at some point that likely will come to market. Yeah. That's fascinating. In my most recent prior life at Smart Energy Decisions, I mean, hydrogen as a fuel source and hydrogen fuel cells are really, I mean, Toyota's developing cars with that technology. There are forklifts that leverage that technology. It's fascinating. I mean, you think about it, it's the infrastructure to make, that's where sometimes the economic piece to that three-legged stool gets lost. They tell people, okay, when was the first EV car, you know, that came out? Okay, well, you know, then it wasn't all of a sudden like you were going to buy an electric vehicle and then, you know, drive it all around town. It takes a while to actually put in the recharge, you know, the charging facilities, right? But there are more and more and more and more and more of them. And now you can drive those cars further and further and further and further. And so, and of course, the technology and the batteries become so much better. And so it just, you know, it it starts, I think people would be surprised at how early so many of these environmental technologies actually start. 
but it's the ability then to bring them to market to where they can be economically sustainable to help all of us. Yes. Yes. Feasible and commercially viable are two very different things. Yeah, that's exactly Uh, right. So, okay. I mean, you're clearly a thought leader in the industry. You're very thoughtful. As you think about the future of environmental design and sustainable design, what do you think is next? Like, where do you, where do you, see things headed if you could wave a magic wand and make some you know make a few things happen what what would you try to bring to reality right now so actually a number of things water number you know is probably number one and of course you know, we see that you know happening in our own it's global john you know the access to clean fresh water right. you know and so you're seeing things you know who who thought about or shouldn't say who thought about it but at least on an average person who thought about microplastics and all these other things, you know, that are happening and affecting our water quality, not only, but, you know, so it's not only the app is the amount of water, you know, but it's also the quality of the water that we as people have access to. So that will likely take precedence over everything that we do on the golf side of things, you know, from here through the foreseeable future, that will be number one. Number two is that there will still be a big push uh, to carbon net zero and whatever small impact, you know, that we can have. I don't want to minimize it, you know, but certainly, uh, you know, we're, our industry is going to absolutely do what we can do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, certain countries or certain regions will push you know, harder and faster with that. But I think eventually we're all going to probably get there. So, you know, again, it's going to be, you know, climate change. And that's the other thing too, John, is I tell people whether you believe that it's hard to argue that climate change isn't here. People can debate all they want about whether or not it's man-made or it's just natural and you know cyclical, but you know, the results are are here. It's pretty hard to argue, you know, against you know what's happening. And so whatever we can do to minimize the impact of that, I think it behooves us, you know, all. And so Again, so water, climate change, I think those are going to be the two biggest issues. I would also ask, you know, and tell people, again, it goes back to the education, because I'm sitting here in Ohio, and we started talking about EV cars, right? How granular some of these things really have to be when you, you know, as a consumer, you know, you're trying to figure out whether or not, you know, something is good or not. I'll give you a for example. And I learned this long ago in my university days. So here I sit in Ohio. And the vast majority of all of the electric here in Ohio comes from, take a guess, coal, burning coal. You know, I see it, you know, because right, especially down along the Ohio River, I mean, you could just go out and it's, you know, (laughs) all you see is, you know, is, is a bunch of haze, right? So again, it becomes that educational component. You can't always assume, right, that, oh, you know, that's great. You know, I live here in wonderful Dublin, you know, Ohio, in the middle of Columbus here, and everybody talks about, you know, having their electric blowers and electric cars and things. And then I remind them, I'm like, where do you think your electricity is coming from, by the way? Yeah, yeah. So you have, you have to think about it, you know, sometimes you guess granular, but then you have to start to look at the bigger picture too. Yeah, there's a real irony in that. And once again, getting back to a prior life at Smart Energy Decisions, you've got people wanting to convert from fuel pa- from uh, fossil fuel to uh, electric and then people find out their utility is 
is cult generated and it's like it, it all it all just goes for naught but i know so ohio and west virginia happen to be two of the states with the highest percentage of their utilities powered by powered by coal uh yes, sir. issue um well i you know this has been awesome the carbon net zero i know uh so um Royal Portrush has a commitment to be carbon neutral by 2035, tying into the 153rd Open that'll be at their course. I, I don't hear too many operators in the states talk about carbon neutrality or net zero. I have heard the USGA mention it. Are, are there, who would you say in the states is the most vocal advocate for carbon neutrality or carbon net zero? in the golf industry? It's a lot of suppliers, frankly, you know, okay. so we go back to those Toros and the Rainbirds, but, you know, and there are more of them, but that is, right. uh, that, that's a big, you know, that's a big component for sure. I mean, just to be frank, you know, about it, John is that, you know, it's, it's a political football in our country and, you know, that's part of what holds, you know, holds it back. We do talk or hear, in particular, you know, carbon net zero, but it's in places like New York. It's in places yeah. like yeah. California. Well, you know, those two states and, you know, in the political uh, spectrum, you know, those, they might, might as well be part of, you know, Russia to some people. And again, I know this isn't meant to go into a, you know, political discussion, but, you know, that's just part of, that's part of it. You know, that, that just simply yeah. is part of it. Yeah. Although it's fascinating, you've brought something to light that I really haven't thought about before. In the corporate, you know, public companies are under severe pressure to have substantial sustainability plans and make net zero yes. commitments. So if you've got these major suppliers in the golf industry that are under pressure to have aggressive sustainability commitments, that interestingly enough may trickle down into the and it does and, and it absolutely does you know some things take longer you know than others but there's a hundred percent does That's you know if you point. are if you are a resort you know and you are looking at you know bringing people from around the country to go and visit you know your facility and stay at your facility i can promise you that you know, golf sustainability, environmental concerns are going to be at the forefront of what they do. You know, again, it's a Marriott example at Ambiente. We talked a little bit about that earlier in our discussion, but they actually, there was a, I was approached by a young woman who was writing her master's thesis on environmental communication. And so she was actually getting her communications master's degree but it was all focused on basically on sustainable discussions and talks and pieces. And I helped her put together a written document that they turned into digital as well. That was left inside Marriott's hotels in Scottsdale. Mm -hmm. And then when you clicked on your TV, up came everything about Ambiente and all of the positive things, you know, environmentally. Again, I promise you, I mean, it was, yes, I mean, were they showcasing, you know, their, their, the golf aspect? Sure. But it was, you know, right at the forefront for nine out of the other 10 people who didn't play golf, that that was really important, you know, to Marriott and they were communicating that. Yeah. Jason, this has been a fantastic conversation and 
you know, I'm not a Joe Rogan where I could get away with two hour episodes, <laughs> although I, I feel like there's so much more I want to talk to you about. So, you know, we'll have to have you back for another episode. Thank you so much for your generous sharing of thoughts, perspective, and, and, and your, you know, your experience before, before we wrap up, I, you know, I like to have a segment of the podcast where we talk about things maybe that are other than golf. So our listeners get a chance to learn even more about you, although I feel like they've learned a lot about you already. So what's the, you know, what really drives you? What, what, what's, what fuels your, 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 your engine? What fuels my coffee right now, but (laughs) (laughs) John, I'd say my family first and foremost, you know, there's both near and far. I've got family that literally lives worldwide. Um, but I'm blessed to have an amazing family and extended family. I've got two beautiful children who are becoming just incredible young adults in their own right, you know, following their own passions. And it's fun to see them grow and to just sort of help shepherd them on as best I can. I've got a, just a, an incredible life partner, my wife, you know, been married for 26 years and college sweethearts and she works uh, for the company and we travel around the world. I couldn't have asked for, uh, you know, somebody better to share my life with incredible parents and, you know, sister and extended relatives. So, and just some unbelievable friends. And I think it's also cool, you know, what I've done for a, a living. But I would say that the thing that is probably most endearing to me is, you know, I, as you can tell, I was so fortunate and so blessed to have met people who cared about me. And for, for that, I will be forever grateful. And if there is anything that I would leave as my legacy, even far more important than the golf courses and even those environments, you know, it was the positive impact that I certainly hope that I have on, you know, friends, family, students. It's amazing. You know, I, I'll go around and I'll have a young person come up to me and say, you, you know, Jason or Mr. Straker, you probably don't remember me, but I had you in school, you know, way back when, and, you know, I lead this amazing career. And that by far means more to me than any accolade that any of my golf courses would receive. That's great. Well, it might be too soon to be talking legacy because you clearly have a lot more game left. <laughs> God willing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful legacy to aspire aspire to. And, you know, you mentioned family as a key source of your, of, of drive. I didn't ask you, have you ever won the Straka cup? I have twice. It was the second year that we had it. And then fairly recently I had a really, really long drought. I attribute that to once you get into the golf industry, you don't really play all that much golf. Right. So that's what happens. That and and I'll tell you that I had just the worst string of bad luck. You know, I'll, I'll blame it on that. There you go. Certainly hey, could, listen. Like, could be my golf, you know, my golf I, swing or anything I, like that, right? Yeah. As does every other golfer. So, but you have to send me a picture of the Straka Cup. I can't wait to see that. I may try to emulate that. That that, that uh, you bet. That, just, that sounds like a hoot. Um, so oh, over the course of your life, who who's been the greatest source of inspiration to you? Mm. Ooh, that's a good question. I would say my. My parents, you know, probably first and foremost, 
the things that they gave me, you know, which I could never appreciate. I would like most kids probably would say, sure. John, I mean, between the two of them, they worked three jobs to put my sister and I, you know, through Ivy League educations and, you know, what they gave up to be able to do that and the time and the effort uh, that they spent with, you know, with us, you know, so my parents by far. And then, you know, in my adult life, certainly my wife, she's got an incredible woman, you know, who can juggle raising a family, having a profession and a crazy husband who spends 200 days on the road every year. <laughs> that's, that, that's great. Well, you're certainly, you're certainly blessed. What, and finally, Jason, tell us about kind of the, the greatest challenge that you've had to face and how you overcame it. The greatest challenge that I've had to face. Are we talking professional, personal? Whichever way you want to go. Hmm. Hmm. That's a really good question. You know, I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that. That's, yeah, there's, you know, I mean, for one, obviously operating your own business because you've got this passion to, you know, to, to make this big impact, you know, in life this enduring impact, but at the end of the day, you also have to run a company that makes money. You know, again, it goes back to that economic uh, side of being, you know, that's without it, you're not sustainable. So there's no question, you know, that running that company and the time and the effort that it takes to be able to do that so that you can continue your craft. That's, that's been one of the biggest challenges. Again, I can't attribute, you know, that that's just me, you know, that takes a whole team effort. But I guess I could say that, you know, I was smart enough and blessed enough to be able to surround myself with some incredibly talented people, you know, who help in that, yeah. in including, and I, and including my business partner, Dana Fry, right. I would be extremely remiss if I didn't, you know, if I didn't mention him specifically by name, because it's, you know, we had worked together for 17 years and, you know, when uh, we decided to work together and he's been just you know, let's, uh, let's go do what we love to do and ride off and just keep, keep doing it as long as we can. Yeah. Well, listen, being smart enough to know that you need others and being able to build a solid team, you know, really, really is to your credit. And having been an entrepreneur, I certainly recognize I'm all too familiar with the nights where you're staring at the ceiling, wondering if this is really going to work. So I, right. I I understand that challenge, and obviously it's 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 been a you know a credit to the great success that you've had because it takes vision, it takes the skill and ability, and then it takes the persistence and you know fortitude to be able to make things happen. So so good on you there. Thanks, John. Jason, this has been awesome, man. I can't thank you enough. It's been really just a, a wonderful conversation. Like I said, we could definitely go for another hour. But we'll need to save that for the next episode. So continued best wishes for all the good things you're working on and especially good health to your family. Appreciate that. Thanks so much. And thanks to our listeners for sitting in on, on another episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast. I'm John Fiella. It, it's been great to be with you here today. If you like the episode, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite uh, podcast player. You could also follow us on social media. We're now live on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So thanks for joining me today and looking forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast. So long.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast. Take action on the ideas inspired by this episode. You can find out more about golf sustainability in the show notes for each podcast episode and following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player, and we'll see you soon on another episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast.